Welcome, Hit the Bottle listeners. I'm your host, Michael Wayne Bickler. When you have an opportunity to spend an hour with one of your respected peers, it's a refreshing experience. It makes you remember why you do what you do and that there are others out there that have similar experiences and thoughts. That was the case when Tom Wark, founder of Work Communications, joined me on the podcast late last year. It is one of our longer interviews, but there were so many valuable insights that we felt guilty about cutting it down. So we didn't. The conversation took us in many different directions, but some of the key points discussed were the evolution of blogging, the importance of third-party endorsement, how you gauge whether an independent blogger is worth your time, why all beverage producers should be publishing their own content on a frequent basis, how the wine industry needs a better communication strategy when communicating digitally, and how wineries should take their experiences on the road. You may need to listen to this one more than once, honestly, but I guarantee you will learn something new. So let's get on with it. Welcome to Hit the Bottle Podcast, a show for beverage sales and marketing professionals looking to up their game and further their careers and businesses. Viewed through the lens of strategy, technology, and leadership, we explore everything from digital marketing, e-commerce, brand building, public relations, and much more. Each week, we chat with industry experts and leaders, explore practical applications, and discuss what's happening in our world. Our goal is to provide you with the insights and strategies you need to create successful marketing programs. Now it's time to hit the bottle. My next guest started a little blog. 15 years ago that he named Fermentation, and he's been going ever since. He's the owner and chief bottle washer for Work Communications, and he has been involved in uh, direct-to-consumer shipping um, on all levels for a number of years. So it's my pleasure to welcome Tom Work to the show. Um, Michael, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great to have you. So today I, I want to yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I've been waiting uh, for a podcast like this. You know, I've seen all these podcasts emerge that talk about wine um, facing the consumer, but I was wondering when there was going to be a podcast that spoke to us, the professionals who work in communications and DTC in the industry. And you went and did it. <laughs> Thanks. I basically created the podcast I wanted to listen to because uh, I was in the same boat. I'm like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I'll do it. So, um, thanks so much for, for saying that. I really appreciate it. Uh, so today we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, a little bit about wine media and blogging and a little bit about social and, uh, how all this sort of influencer marketing, um, kind of falls into, uh, what we're doing in the beverage business. So, um, you've been, you've been doing this for a long time. So, what to you is important for us to consider when we're talking about blogging in general? Well, it certainly depends on, um, on why you're blogging and who you want to communicate to. So uh, bloggers, at least in the wine business, wine bloggers have predominantly been those folks who want to reach a consumer audience. Um, and in my view, um, the emergence of the wine blog, or let me step back, the emergence of um, the technical platforms that allowed anybody to reach the same audience as the New York Times and Time Magazine and the Wine Spectator in an affordable way, almost for free, was a revolution um, in, in wine communications as it was in every other industry. Um, some of us have been in the business long enough to know that um, there was a time when the only the people who controlled uh, what people read about wine, it came down to about 
maybe 10 or 12 different magazines, most of which were hardly read, and then maybe 10 or 12 different folks at um, uh, at daily newspapers and a few magazine writers. That was it. They were the voices and the editors at those places. They were the ones who determined what would be discussed in, in terms of wine in front of consumers. Once the blogging software arrived that allowed anybody to to write and allowed anybody to access that, access that audience, everything changed primarily because um, all these voices that had essentially been penned up or, or been spouting on, on bulletin boards or been um, sitting around at a bar talking to each other about terroir, all of a sudden all these voices could, um, could communicate um, with a vastly larger audience. And all of a sudden um, the gates the keepers had tried to keep up when it came down. And it was a true revolution. Um, and that was exciting to me. I mean, I, I started blogging, I don't know, in 2004, and at the time, I think there were two other people, Louis Dresner and and um, and Alder Yarrow, who were blogging about wine, and um, and it was exciting to know that. For, I mean, for literally um, uh, an investment of ten dollars, all of a sudden, I had the potential to reach the same audience, and people responded at the time. It was very novel and whatnot. But that was 15 years ago, and so you know things have changed considerably. Um, Today, there's a lot less excitement um, around wine blogging. There's a lot less excitement around there being new voices along the way. I think wine blogging, um, in in some circles, got a bad name. Um, but I still think that the traditional wine blog, when uh, when operated by somebody with integrity and somebody with a real excitement um, around wine. Um, they can find an audience, and they can potentially find a big audience, and potentially make a difference. So I'm still very excited um, about wine blogs, but to use them today, I think one has to be fairly strategic. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges. I, I'm often asked by clients about what they, um, who they should consider to be the most influential wine bloggers out there, because frankly, you know. I need, as you say, with the software now, anybody can be a blogger. And so the question is, 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 are they important enough um, to pay attention to? And I think that's, that's one of the challenges that a lot of um, beverage producers have. And there's a lot of suspicion, I think also um, in that realm of, because I think there are a few people, a few bad apples who have um, spoiled the bunch in some cases of just asking for free stuff. Yeah. Those people are usually easy enough to find, but it takes a little bit of research, right? I mean, you get a call from somebody, they say that they want to, to do samples and to review so-and-so's wine. Oh, and I've got this great audience. I've got 2,000 people on my Twitter feed and another 2,000 on Facebook, um, but I'm very prominent in my hometown. Well, and you go back and you start to do the research, and it's clear that this person has gotten samples from other people in the past and has written their two-sentence two review. And even that has grammatical mistakes in it. Um, but you have to do the work, right, to, to figure out who these people are. Um, and it's just a, it's an ongoing process. But there was a little bit of that, I think, that spoiled the wine blogging pool to a degree. Um, and then I, there were a lot of wine bloggers, myself included, um, who in the early days were more than happy to, you know, sort of take on establishment views and, you know, to, to put out clickbait um, um, headlines and whatnot, and the traditional wine media looked at that group of people and just thought they were, you know, uh, flights of fancy, that they were just trying to get attention. To some degree, um, we were, but to some degree, we also did, and um, and some of us um, did a pretty good job and went on to do some pretty great things beyond blogging, too. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of determining who's going to be the right person to put your client in front of you know, and how much influence this blogger has over that blogger. It comes down a little bit um, to, you know, asking yourself, is it pornography or is it not? You know, you can tell it when you see it. <laughs> well, that, I do have a few criteria as to what I consider to be blogs worthy of, uh, independent blogs worthy of consideration. And, you know, a lot of that you've already implied, one of those is that is the quality of the writing, Right. Um, you know, if it's full of typos and uh, jargon that nobody's going to understand, then uh, then it's really not going to give you the best 
quality write-up that you're going to want. Um, so the quality of the writing has everything to do with it. The voice, um, you know, the personality behind it, uh, and to a certain extent, the readership as well. That's right. Yeah, I, I'm always looking for um, for that wine blogger who's really stepping up and who's doing a lot better um, than everybody else. And they come; they're few and far between. Um, but I'm always looking for for one. Um, and the one that I came across most recently that I really wanted to write about was um, Amber at Spitbucket. Um, she's a great blogger. She's a really good thinker. Her writing is um, is pretty darn good too. And she writes about consequential consequential issues too. I'm finding fewer and fewer new bloggers now um, who meet the criteria that you're talking about, who are good writers um, and who take the the subject seriously, and who I'd want my clients. Um, to be uh, to be written about from, but one of the things I also look at too to to gauge the um, the seriousness or the influence of a blogger is how often um, they actually post. Yeah, frequency um, for sure. I don't believe somebody who posts who wants to. I don't believe somebody who posts no more than once a week is serious. I really don't. Um, it's so easy to post once a week that it doesn't take any effort whatsoever. Um, and particularly if somebody's only posting, you know, a wine review um, once a week, um, and they give us two or three paragraphs and a photo of the wine, they're just not trying. And I like to try to reward and work with those people who are trying. Yeah, you know, and, and to to a certain extent, I mean, you can you can get wine reviews from any of the big publications, right? And frankly, they're going to be probably uh, more influential than uh than your average blog so really what i would look for from an independent blogger um is a story you know what kind of story can you build around the the wines or collection of wines that you're talking about that's right that's that that's that and even if it's a review um and or a story and even if the blogger isn't that influential if you're going to work with bloggers all of a sudden you're going to find that your client has four, five, six, ten different reviews or stories by these relatively non-influential bloggers. But when you package them together and then all of a sudden you re-deliver them on social media or you re-deliver them to your wine club or to your mailing list, uh, they really work in that way. I mean, they're not going to move the dial um, in terms of you know moving tens or hundreds of cases of wine. It's just not going to happen. But what I like to do is I like to try to package them together for our clients um, and then send them out to the rest of the audience who probably didn't see him to begin with. That's always the value of, um, of having a third party endorsement. Right. Well, and then you, you don't need that many. I mean, you don't need to have hundreds and hundreds of bloggers that you're sending samples to. You need to need no. like 10 or 20, you know, that are right. good. And, you know, if you can collect together 10 or 20 of them, then, you know, that shows, um, some, some real movement there. You know, it's harder than it used to be back in the day. I mean, if you would ask me, how do you gauge influence, you know, say pre blog, it was very, very easy. You looked at the sales kit and you saw what the circuit, what the audited circulation was of the magazine, um, or you saw what the circulation was of the newspaper, and that was it. That was easy. I mean, if the New York Times had a circulation of 1.9 million, okay, that's easy. That's influential just because of all the eyeballs. The Wine Spectator may have only had 250 or uh, what was it, maybe 500,000 back in the day. Um, but you knew the readership was was ideal. Um, it's a different kind of readership. It was very. It was much easier to gauge influence back in the day than it is now. Now you have to take into account not just circulation or readership or click throughs, but you're looking at page views and you're looking at you know social media follows and likes and and then you have to look and see how they're using their social media feed with regard to their other content. And it's become a much more complex thing. It's it's interesting. Um, but I'm wondering, maybe you know this because there used to be a few things like this, but is there anything right now that does a really good job of measuring influence by taking into account your Facebook followers, your Instagram followers, your Twitter followers, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything that's doing a good job? At yeah. That now? Yeah. Trend kite kind of does that. Yeah. Um, and there's a few others out there, but you know, they're expensive. <laughs> right. That's right. Remember the, there was that one that was free. What was it called? It began with a K clout. Remember clout? Oh, right. Yeah. 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 That was yep. funny. Back in the day I had clients who said, Oh, we want to, 
we want to move up on clout. We want to yeah. that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it was it was it was an admirable goal to try and quantify, um, you know, what uh, what people were doing uh, in in way. So, but you know, really, what it comes down to is is uh, engagement numbers and you know how how engaged um, people are, how many people are liking what you're doing and, uh, you know, engaging in conversations with you. You know, that's frankly, I mean, I think that's um, uh, what you have developed over time as well as folks like Alder. I'm, I'm curious to see like how that's evolved over time for you. Like, I'm sure that, you know, what I've seen is basically that one time, like comments on blogs were, were plentiful and now, they're almost non-existence. Is that still the case with, with your blog and have had the conversations moved elsewhere? It's everything's moved into social media. The yeah. conversation has moved to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I mean, it used to be back in the day where I keep saying back in the day, I don't like that term now that I hear myself <laughs> say it. Um, it used to be before social media, um, BSM that, um, the conversation on blogs would be robust and they still can be. And they still, Occasionally, still are depending on the topic, but generally, um, after we write a blog post, of course, we're, we're always promoting it on Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook and whatnot, and that's where the conversations happen. Um, and it, it's just a function of the way people have changed communicating. Um, so that's where all the that's where all the comments have gone. I mean, I can I can post a link to a new post, say on Facebook, and I'll you know I'll get. 30, 40 comments there. It used to be that I would get 30 or 40 comments or even more um, directly on the blog. I'm always satisfied when, or more satisfied when people actually come to the blog to comment. Um, that's where people, I think, feel a little bit freer um, to really get into the argument and into the discussion. Um, so uh, I, I still like it when that happened, but it doesn't happen nearly as much. It's all, it's all gone to social media. Um, so we're all paying attention to a few different things. Yeah. I, I, and it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, how, how to measure somebody's influence. And let's, you know, let's talk a little bit about that is that, you know, like how do you, how do we measure influence that somebody has? We can't base it solely on blog posts or how many readers they have on their blog because it's social media that extends further out. Well, certainly we're going to go look and, um, and investigate their social media feeds, aren't we? I mean, we're going to look and see if they're using social media regularly and responsibly and if they're getting, um, if they're getting interaction with their audience. And that's easy enough uh, to determine uh, generally. So that's, you go there and you'll look at that. And also you'll see what, what the quality of the interaction, too. Um, that's real important to me, too. What kind of people are they attracting? And the other thing I'll do, too, is, I mean, if somebody says, I don't know, on, uh, I don't know, say Twitter, right? And they've got, say, 10,000 followers. I want to know who those 10,000 followers are. I want to know who the, who the first 100 followers were. Um, and I'll look and see what kind of, you know, who those people are. And I'll look to see if there are influential people who are serious people who are following them, too, and who are commenting. From doing that sort of thing, if you don't happen to know the person already, you can get a sense of, of the degree to which they're going to do things responsibly and seriously. Um, and you're going to find out the degree to which you can promote them once you get a review from them or, um, uh, or an article from them or, or whatever. So that's the first thing that I'm going to do. Since everything has moved to social media, I'm going to investigate their social media, um, their social media play and, and see where it takes me. Yeah, it's time-consuming, though, man. I mean, it really is. It is. But you know, I mean, that's but, why. I mean, that's why people should hire agencies because that's what they, that's what we do, right? And we and and often enough times we've already done that for another client. So well, that's exactly right. When they have questions about, you know, X blogger, they don't know because they haven't had any good reason to investigate, or the in-house PR person they have is you know too busy putting wine in boxes for the next um for the next uh, wine club send because they were dragooned into doing that. Um, but theoretically, we've been doing that the whole time. And theoretically, if a client asks us about a blogger who we've absolutely never heard of, chances are they're not blogging about wine on a regular basis. Um, chances are they're an influencer who wants to blog about wine or wants to post about wine or whatnot. So that is the value. That's always been the value. 
um, of hiring an agency or a consultant um, to do that work for you, particularly where media relations is concerned, I think. Um, that's where our value is really um, is, is really heightened. I, I, can't, I can't agree more. Um, and, you know, we do consider, you know, we, we've been talking about blogs this whole time, and that's, you know, where these kind of started. But, you know, the, the idea of blogging, and for that matter, for the traditional media, they've all kind of evolved and almost the, the, the lines have blurred, right? Because, you know, traditional publications are are actually publishing as much online or more online nowadays than they are even in print. And, and, you know, and then bloggers, you know, they're, they're extending well beyond, well beyond their blog also. So the key is to like, again, like know who, who you're talking to and uh, what kind of um, quality they are. Is there any wine media group out there that is not um, publishing online? I'm not aware of one at this point. I mean, there it used to be um, that there were such things, but I don't I don't know of one now. And I would be suspicious, to be honest with you, um, of of any publishing group that tried to exist, uh, you know, in print only. Um, I j I wouldn't understand that particular strategy. Yeah, there's right. there's, there's there's no wine publications. There are some other publications that are um, mostly print. Uh, but you know, they tend to be very specialized and kind of like niche and kind of, I can imagine something like the art of eating, you know, staying yeah. in print, right. Um, something right. along those lines. Although I don't know if it is, um, only like in print, I doubt it. or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, but, uh, but you're right. I mean, the lines have, have been blurred. I mean, blogging it, Blogging is a really weird word to use now. It worked yeah. back in back then when the platform was new, but in the end, it's just a it's just a press, isn't it? And it's just it's just a way of publishing things. That's all it is. But the, we think about the blogger as that person who would who would post things in sequential order, um, and who would have a little a uh, little sidebar of other bloggers who they liked, right? And Certainly, they were an independent voice. I think now, when people think of bloggers, what they think of is an independent voice, unconnected to um, a, a, a major media group or even a minor media group, for that matter. Um, that still seems to be this what people talk about when they talk about bloggers. Although, I sometimes see lists um, here and there on the internet that say the top bloggers, and you see Wine Spectator, right, yeah, Robinson, yep, and yep. I always think well, that's not fair. I don't want to be compared to those guys. I don't. You know, I don't want to go into business against Marvin Schenken. I don't think I am in business against <laughs> Marvin Schenken. So, but that, to that but, point, though, I mean that that's essentially what they are still doing. I mean, they're you're, they're publishing you know blog posts every day. Um, yeah, you know, you're right. You, essentially, that is what they're doing with a uh, with a print publication on the side, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. No. Exactly. You're absolutely right. So, in that sense, you know, everything uh, everything has changed. Um, but you know, it's interesting too. Thinking about wine media, I, it's really in an interesting state of flux right now. Um, I just read today that 750 Daily and, and Beverage Media combined, and um, and it started me thinking. I think we might be in store for some, for some consolidation in the wine media industry. There are a few properties out there that I can see being gobbled up or looking attractive to other folks. And I'm not going to be surprised at all if we see that happen in 2020. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, we, we saw a little bit of that um, with Venice kind of picking up uh, a few things. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, uh, I think, uh, I think you're right. You know, but the other thing is, is that, you know, you and I were talking before the show about how there's this kind of odd sense right now for people like us who've been doing communications in the wine business for a long time, how there seems to be this feeling that earned media. And when we talk earned media, blogging and, um, uh, you know, getting um, your, your articles into uh, publications, whether or magazines, and that's all earned media, how that um, doesn't seem to have the same kind of value now that it once had. Um, and it's an odd phenomenon. And I'm wondering what that means for the future. Well, I've thought about this a lot. And I think part of it has to do with 
I think there's a growing distrust of professional media in general. I think that owes to a number of different um, conditions that underlie our culture right now. Um, I think that's part of it, um, because I agree with you that I think there is a, a diminished appreciation for earned media and you know, uh, getting, your, uh, getting your name in the paper, if you will. And so I think that's part of it. I think also um, a lot of people have become absolutely captured by um, instant feedback. And the only place you can really get instant feedback today is social media and everyone's on social media. And that's, that is an information platform for a lot of people, um, including a lot of important professional people. This is where they, they look to see themselves mentioned. Um, and I think that has something to do with it too. Um, some people are going to value a, um, a, a Twitter mention more than they're going to um, value a short profile in a regional paper that will also be printed online um, about their company or about their efforts or about their new um, whatever. I think that's part of it too. So I, uh, whenever I get a new client and whenever, whenever that client is all about media relations and trying to gin up more earned media, I always have to let them know that just like it's always been, it's a process. Um, and if you're hiring me for three months to try to gin up some earned media for you, I mean, I'll take your money, but I won't get you anything. It's a process. <laughs> exactly. It takes. Um, and you're going to have to hire me for a year because I'm going to yeah. I'm going to pitch stories to some pretty prominent members of the media and some pretty prominent publications. I'm going to pitch it today, and it's going to come through four, five, six months from now. Um, after they have their editorial meeting, after they decide what they're going to write for their August issue, after. I mean, and I think there's a lack of patience, um, at least less patience today than there was. And that's our challenge um, as, as consultants, and that's our challenge as professionals to educate our clients that the value of um, an article in whatever it is, you know, if Forbes or Time or the New York Times or I was going to name some other newspapers, but I think some of the ones I was going to name, they're already dead. Um, <laughs> uh, there's value in that. There's real value in that. And you can extend the value via social media and via your newsletters and even, you know, in your, um, in, in the boxes that you send out with your, with your wine clubs. There's a number of different ways that that sort of thing makes a real impact, but the person has to be patient. It'll come if you make the right pitch and if you, if you sell convincingly and if you have a good story, you know, the, it, it'll come, but it's not going to come in three months. It's not going to come in one month. So, but I always thought that was the value of bloggers though, right? Because I've been pitched stories um, for fermentation that I've actually been able to turn around that day and write about. Um, and people are absolutely shocked when it happens. <laughs> uh, and they should be because it hardly ever happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's... Um... That's okay. No, I think um, it's it was funny. It's it's a um, it's a lack of attention. I think it's, it's the attention span that is that is in part harming the value of um, of earned media because it's not as instantaneous um, as social media. And that's I was going to say that's a problem in our culture, but it is what's happening. It is what is what is, and that's what we have to deal with as professional communicators. That's how people are operating today, and so we have to adjust um, uh, our outreach to the media to accommodate for that. There's just no other way around it. Here's a message from our sponsor.
So, okay, there's, there, there is never a time when a third-party endorsement isn't valuable. That's right. I, I think we've covered that well. So let's talk about owned media. And so that's stuff that's generated by a producer or their agents. So should a, should a producer, a, a beverage producer, blog themselves? So let's, let's keep it in, in wine then. Um, if, if the uh, producer is at their peak production and if they're selling out that production completely at the price they want to sell it at, then no, there's no reason for them to do it. <laughs> we can probably but, count count those 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 wineries on one hand. That's right. Well, you got there before I did. So, um, <laughs> and in fact, those wineries might want to raise their prices. So you might want to support that somehow. So, the the better way to ask the question is why wouldn't um, uh, why wouldn't a winery or a beverage company want to create their own controlled content that helps them um, uh, helps them communicate their values and their mission um, to their customers. Why wouldn't you do that? Clearly, you'd want to do it well, but I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't. Um, and even if it's a small audience, so I have a client now that is literally targeting a total of maybe 400 companies um, that it wants to do business with. And so what we've done is we've created a blog and we've created a newsletter that gets sent out on a regular basis to those 400 companies, to 400 people. That's it. And it's of great value because we're able to, on a regular basis, brand ourselves exactly the way we want to brand ourselves, um, deliver our mission statement. We're able to deliver our values um, without an intermediary. Um, and all the other, <laughs> Michael, the other value of it, and you'll like this too, you'll go, yeah, that's right, is when we first started doing media relations for this company too, um, the first reporter um, who, we, uh, who we worked with got it wrong. Despite listening to us and, and interviewing us, they just got it wrong, right? And I had to explain to my client, you know, that's par for the course. Um, I promise you that the re reporters you talk to in the future are going to get it wrong, which is, again, another reason why if you can control the message to your customers, I can't think of a good reason why you wouldn't want to do that. So many times. <laughs> oh, I know. And I always tell my clients that basically it's like you, they're going to have at least one thing wrong in, in every article that's written about you. Uh, it oh, man. Matter. And I just get up and do the happy dance if it's one thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just one thing. Yeah. Um, but um, so, yes. Um, and the other, the other thing is I don't think it costs that much to develop good, well-considered content uh, that works for your audience. I think, um, which makes the, the ROI somewhat high um, for that kind of a play. So even if it's just a blog um, uh, that you're publishing on, on your website, um, that you're alerting your, um, your customers or your mailing list to, it's a relatively inexpensive way to brand yourself. Um, and so that's, again, why it's also valuable. Um, it, it gives the small guy a way to raise their profile um, and do sort of the same thing that the bigger guys are doing. So I'm all in favor of uh, blogging, um, at the very least, for most companies that I'm working with. Sometimes you get to let them do their own writing, you know, sometimes it's rare. Um, but if they don't do it, if they're going to hire us, we can certainly do it for them. We can do it faster and on a more regular basis, hopefully in their own voice. Um, so I, I, I can't figure out those moments when it's not a value. I agree. You know, content creation is, is um, a major function for agencies like ours. So um, it does actually require a certain amount of um, talent. <laughs> you Agreed. Know, 100%. Basic, basic talent, but it does, you know, require that somebody is a good storyteller. Um, and you don't even have to call it a blog. You know, no. you can be weekly updates or, you know, notes from the seller or whatever you want to call it. You don't even have to call it a blog. Um, but right. You don't have to call it, a, and I don't, I don't think most people would actually now. Yeah. Um, it would that would be sort of sort of um, archaic, I think, to call I it think, that. Call it whatever you want, but as long as you're pushing out, you know, well developed information that again, you're right, has a good story um, that communicates the values and communicates the mission. Um, I, 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 it's always going to be of value, and again, 
um, even if you're hiring a consultant or a firm to do it for you, um, I, I think it's I think the return on that investment is significant enough to do it. Um, the only question, the only pushback I usually get, or sometimes get, when I make this recommendation is, aren't people getting inundated already with um, with information? And I don't think that's I don't think that's the right way to respond. I mean, I think there is a, a tidal wave of information that comes at us, but I think people have done a pretty good job of siloing themselves um, and taking in the information that they want to take in. Um, so I don't think that that's necessarily a bigger problem as some people think it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the thing is, is that you know, again, the way that the way that cons- that consumer behavior is working these days is that uh, most buyers are engaging with brands that they have an affinity for. Right, that they 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 like their values, they like their vision, um, like their products, what have you. So if they're already engaged in that way, they're going to read your blog. You're going to re- any of the content that you that you create, they're going to be interested in that. Those are those are your super fans, right? That's right. The rest of the people out there that aren't doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if they read it because it's they're not going to take any action on it anyway. So that's ex- um, that's. Ex- which, which takes me back to my client who literally has four target, 400 targets. That's it. I could care. We don't care. In fact, we don't necessarily want anybody else to read what they're doing. Just these 400 people. Eventually, we'll get them all, right? But that's all we care about. Um, it doesn't matter. So as long as you can identify those folks who are likely to, uh, um, to be sympathetic to your message or want to hear what you have to say or appreciate what you're doing, those are the ones you're going to be trying to influence um, through your work, so you're right, and it doesn't matter if they don't if they don't listen to you. Although, although it's true, and I hear it more and more that the wine industry really needs to change the way it communicates. And this, I don't know where I come down on this yet, but there seems to be this feeling that as things start to change in the industry, as um, as Amazon, for example, might start to get in the business. Um, of selling and shipping wine down the road, it's going to put wineries at risk, and they're going to have to up their game. They're going to have to up their game through digital um, communications. And they're, they're going to have to start being the Warby Parkers of the world, right? And they're going to have to. Um, and, I, and I don't know if I don't know how much the wine industry can necessarily do different in the way that it um, communicates. Uh, to its customers, particularly the wine industry that we're talking about and that we tend to work with, those folks who are making ultra-premium um, or, or highly expensive wines. Um, but that seems to be the discussion that people are starting to uh, to have right now is how how can the wine industry talk differently once um, the big boys start to get into the wine game? And when big boys are talking about um, Amazon, I mean... It's an interesting conversation to have. I'm not sure that that the wine industry is equipped to become the Warby Parkers of the world. Uh, no. <laughs> but I mean, there, there are a few out there that might be able to do it. But yeah, if you're selling uh, five thousand cases a year, or ten thousand cases a year, yeah. even fifteen thousand cases a year, I don't know. I the one thing that I want to have, if I'm selling fifteen thousand cases a year, or ten, or five, the one thing I want to have. Is I want to have a tasting room. I want to have a tasting room on Highway 12, or I want to have a tasting room on Highway 29. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. And yep. I, that's, but but I, I think I might be becoming the becoming the minority on that opinion. I yeah, I uh, you know, I I'm of several minds <laughs> on this topic. You know, uh, one is is that I do believe that the wine business has to change the way that it conducts itself online that it can actually do much better digitally than it does. What, do I think that the, the, you know, those higher end wines from Napa, Sonoma, wherever that are, you know, $50 plus, I don't think they're going to necessarily be competing with Amazon. I think that again, it comes down to finding your super fans, finding the people who are really into your brand you know, whether those are wine club members or what have you, and being able to grow that base, that's going to, as, as a ultra premium 
producer, I believe that's where your success is going to be. I don't necessarily think it's going to be in the, in competing against Amazon on price or any other uh, any other way. That said, that kind of middle tier between twenty and fifty dollars, I that they could be in trouble when it comes to might competing against the folks like and well, particularly if they're working inside the three tier system. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think um, they're going to give up more and more margin, and it's going to get tighter and tighter. The thing is, though, nobody's going to want to give up more and more margin. The first thing they're going to ask themselves is, how can I retain my margin um, as as Amazon and maybe retailers and more people get into the business? Um, how can I retain my margin and, and stay or incre- stay where I am with, with regard to DTC or increase it and get my wines out of that three-tier system? And one of the things that I don't think enough people do when they're going to start thinking about doing it, particularly when you're selling wines in the $60, $70, $80 bottle range, is I don't think we take the tasting room on the road with us enough. Um, I don't think we go into markets and find your your champion um, in um, in Charleston and have a um, a dinner in their house where they invite 20, 25 people. Um, and you go there and you literally get drunk with those folks. And all of a sudden they're your friends. And all of a sudden the friends that they invited to this party are buying the wine too because they know the winemaker. He was there. I don't think that kind of move is exploited enough in our business. There are people who complain that the wine industry waits for people to come to their tasting room. And they do. We, we do wait for people to come to our tasting room. I think maybe the next move, uh, we'll see a lot of wineries start to do it, is to get out in the market and bring their tasting room on the road into people's homes. Well, that's I, one of the things I might concentrate on. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, I'm, you know, that's something that we're already working on with, with some of our clients and you're starting, and, and there are some, there are some wineries out there that are doing this really well. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Like folks like Kistler, you know, and you know, they're, um, they're, that's exactly what they do. They're, you know, they're on the road and, and they're talking to people in their market because they can't rely on them coming to California or Oregon or Washington to, that's right. Uh, the other guy who does it really well is John Caldwell yeah. um, here in uh, here in Napa. And I don't know if you know John Caldwell, but if anyone listening knows John Caldwell, I want you to try to imagine to have him in your in your house with twenty of your best friends. I can guarantee you, you're going to have one of the best times of your life. Um, and it just works. Um, and they increase their customer base. They increase their wine club. Um, and if you're selling 100% direct, you've got the margin in there to be able to get on the road and pay for the plane tickets and the and the hotels to increase your uh, your customer base. But um, but I wanted to go back because you said something that I keep hearing other people say, and and they say it, but I don't know exactly what they mean. Um, I think different people mean different things. So you said the what the wine industry needs to do is they need to do better digitally. I don't know exactly what that means. I, I don't know if that means that they need to have a better social media outreach program. I don't know if that means that they need to have better websites. I don't need, know if that means they need to have, um, you know, go go with the geofencing strategy and see who's in town. I, I'm not exactly sure what it means when somebody um, uh, like you or my friend Paul Mabry or other people say we need to do better digitally. I have a sense of what they're saying, but I'm not entirely sure what they mean. Well, uh, it's an excellent point. And, uh, the answer is all of the above. Um, and, but more than that, it is, it is, it is a realization that, uh, you have a very powerful set of tools, um, to market to and sell to your potential customers. And, Frankly, it's the the expertise, the knowledge, and or the work is just isn't there for most wineries. As you say, most most wineries are you know for, if they're selling direct, they're making their nut on uh, people coming to them, signing them up for the wine club, and then them going somewhere else. Whereas you know if you're able to engage uh, using any of these digital tools, and it comes down to it's not the tools, it's how you're using them. So the art of marketing that we practice is all about relationships, right? Whether that is through PR, whether that's through advertising, whether that's social media, whatever, the whole idea is that you want to make a connection with somebody. And the fact is, is that 
the wine business is terrible at doing that online. Um, you know, and there are many different tricks and, and tools that they can use, whether it's through, you know, personalization, you know, more personalization of, of communications with the people who, you know, online, um, or, you know, whether that has to do with, you know, automating certain functions, um, that will help, uh, move people down that sales funnel to purchase. So there's any number of things um, that that can be done, but a lot of the a lot of wineries, except for the big boys, aren't really doing it. Well, that's right, and that's why I, um, not to talk about him behind his back. Um, and I'm sure he'll call me when I do talk behind his back. But that's um, that's why Paul Mabry's company, um, most of his clients, I think, could be qualified as the big boys, at least in our neck of the woods. But the one thing also that Paul would tell everybody who listens is that if we are going to do better digitally, then you need to think about having that VP of, of digital on your staff and finding the person with the talent and the know-how and the knowledge and bring them on and dedicate them um, to, your digital, um, to your digital profile and your digital activity. That makes sense to me. Um, I've never hired uh, a VP of digital. I don't know what it costs. My guess is it's it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood, depending on where you are, of a hundred to one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, plus benefits. And the question I have is, to what degree do you make that back, um, and more, obviously, um, as a result of their talent? And I haven't seen too many good um, case studies in the wine industry of what happens when somebody brings on a person who's dedicated not to building the wine club and using digital technology to do it, not to, you know, managing the tasting room and then also being in charge of social media, but bring somebody on who's absolutely dedicated to working um, through the digital channels, be it social media, um, branding online, making sure the color scheme from from the website to the photos on, um, on Instagram, um, are, are correctly aligned and correctly um, communicating your branding. Um, I haven't seen that case study, and it's something that I desperately want to see um, because I have a feeling that there's that if we had a good case study and if we saw somebody who did it successfully, that it might open a lot of people's eyes in terms of bringing somebody online to communicate only in the digital sphere. Yeah, so it. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on you a little bit on that, and that is that um, I look at this in terms of just being another piece of the marketing mix. So if you're a VP of marketing, you should have a clear understanding of how digital tools work and how you can market digitally. I don't think you necessarily have to have somebody who's dedicated to that. I think you have to have somebody who has a vision and is willing to make the investment in that. And you can bring in outside talent to do that. You can um, hire consultants to do that. Um, or you can do it internally, but uh, I don't necessarily think that you have to have a dedicated person. I just think that it, you need to shift the culture. Uh, it's and, a good point. And no, start you thinking make a good about. Point, but I would ask you the same thing. Yeah. I would ask once you hire the consultants who you're confident in, and once you pay them the money, um, I, I want to see the return on that investment. Um, I'm not saying that. Um, I, I want to see the study that shows me the return on that investment. That's what I want to see. What were the costs? What was the investment? And how much did that directly increase my sales, my wine club, you know, my, my lifetime um, value of the client, whatever it is. Um, that's what I want to see. And I haven't seen that yet. And I don't know why I haven't seen it. Maybe somebody's keeping secrets from us. Well, I think, part, yeah, I mean, it could be that part of it is that, you know, people don't want to share um, their numbers. I mean, you know, Okay, so um, <laughs> the wine business, as you and I know, is quite insular. And I mean, one of the one of the one of the challenges with you know bringing in that digital talent is the fact that you know we have this tendency to want to keep to ourselves and not bring in that uh, people in from other industries who may have the talent that we need or the expertise that we need because we feel like you know they don't know the wine business and so they can't actually do the do the job. Um, I, I don't know where that comes from. I think it's just a lot of inertia in, in the business, um, because it's of its traditional roots and what have you. But, um, the fact is, is that again, I think it just comes down to, um, a cultural shift in within, within these companies that basically says, you know what, we need to start thinking about all of these things. And frankly, they need to start thinking about marketing in general more 
you know, it's not just digital marketing. It's just just marketing in, in general. Cause you know that like when, when a company has a down quarter or whatever, what have you, the first thing that ha- that goes is marketing, which is always counterintuitive to me because that's the one thing that's going to keep you afloat. Right. Um, to your point about ROI, um, you know, I think it probably has to do with, again, kind of lack of resources to be able to calculate that um, because of so many different silos within a lot of these organizations where, you know, um, the sales doesn't talk to marketing and marketing doesn't talk to finance and finance doesn't talk to production, you know? So it's just, it's um, again, it, it, I think it really comes down to culture. Other production based um, industries have figured out how to do it though. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, and the wine business has to do that. And I think it, part of that, part of the, the key here is going to probably be, be bringing more talent from outside of the business. I mean, good talent, you know, not just, uh, you know, the, the people who happen to work in that business, but people who actually know what they're doing to really yeah. um, help in that regard. You know, what's interesting, Michael, is um, I've, been in the, I've been in the business just long enough now to know that um, my own business um, as, as a public relations consultant always does better in a recession. It's really interesting because maybe it's, maybe it's just my prices. You know, I think I'm priced fairly, but um, but there are a lot of companies. You know, once the sales start to dip, for whatever reason, I, I start to get more and more calls in the recession. And I think it's they're looking for something that's going to save them, and then I have to tell them, well, it's going to be a few months before you get the uh, the results back. Then. Um, but that's what I've always found. As opposed when times when times are good, who needs the PR guy? You know, um, things are things are good. You know. So I'm not saying I'm looking forward to a recession, despite the fact that I think there's one coming. Um, but, you know, so I, I, I get maybe I need to pay better attention. But, and your point is well taken that um, it's not necessarily somebody who needs to be brought on as the VP of digital. But there's any number of different combinations of consultants who can bring that talent to you. And the talent is out there in the way of various consultancies. You're right. Um, but I think we're going to have to get that case study from a winery that probably is making 50 to 100 to 150,000 cases a year. I think we're going to find very few wineries that are making, you know, 5,000 to 10,000 cases a year who are going to be able to justify the expense of hiring one or two different consultancies um, to put together the program and carry out the program for us. They've already got the the person in the tasting room who's doing the wine club and who's running the tasting room and who's putting wine in boxes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so maybe we're going to have to look for a generous, larger winery um, who's going to do the case study for us and have it published. Yeah, perhaps. But you know, there's also um, you know, also the idea of of hiring consultants to train your your staff and, mm-hmm. and to you know, there's other ways of, of of bringing in the expertise and the talent. It doesn't have necessarily have to be you know hiring high dollar consultants to do stuff. Mike, let me ask you a question because I was having this conversation and it sort of dovetails into what we were talking about and it's sort of a personal, I don't know if it's a personal question or not, but um, tell me the truth. Do you like social media? Uh, (laughs) Honestly, not in its current iteration. See, I'm sort of with you. I I was talking to a guy who, um, whose business it is um, is to go in and run the social media platforms, primarily for wineries, but other regional businesses and whatnot. We were having a talk, and we weren't even drinking. And he says to me, I hate social media with a hot, burning passion. He hates it. And for some of the same reasons that you just mentioned in terms of... But, but the point that he was making is I spend so much time looking at Twitter feeds and trying not to look at certain Twitter feeds and reading the most inane shit that um, you could possibly type out on a computer ending up on Facebook or Instagram. And he's actually losing his faith in humanity um, as a result. And, and yet he's making a very good living, you know, trying to do it right um, for different companies and, and trying to increase their profile with the right people. But he, he hates with a hot burning passion, um, what he sees on social media and it's a it's something that's out there i think you know in the i don't know what you want to call it in the in the ether um i think there are a lot of people like this guy who absolutely hate social media and i wonder to what extent that that impacts 
that impacts the willingness of some in our industry to want to engage in the digital sphere. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I completely understand, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I honestly, personally, I don't, I'm not as active in Twitter as I once was, you know, um, you know that I was fairly active in Twitter early on. Um, but it's, it's, it's not something that I, uh, I do often, uh, anymore. Uh, I spend most of my time, um, on Instagram and, um, I kind of have a love hate relationship with Facebook. Um, you have to do Facebook cause it's the biggest, you know, it's the biggest boy on the block, right. but, but you know, there's other, there's, you know, the thing is, is that, um, for those that have maybe have, you know, Facebook fatigue or, you know, just social fatigue in general, there are other things coming down the pipe and they, uh, they are far targeted at a younger audience. Um, and frankly, they're, they're, in, in some ways, they're just more fun. I don't know how brands are going to be able to, to utilize them currently, but uh, I think that, you know, I, there are plenty of tools. And I look, at, I look at social media as a tool. It's just another tool for communications, and you just have to do it right. Um, but as a, as, a, uh, as a consumer of social media, yeah, um, there, um, there are challenges there, but as a person who is a marketer who has to use social media as a, uh, as a tool, um, there's, you know, there's still, uh, a lot of power in that. Well, it seems to me that, um, that filters, um, have to come into play here a lot, um, particularly in any sort of a platform that might be coming down the road, because it seems like inevitably any sort of a social platform devolves into, a, into a hashtag I saw the other day that was actually starting to trend, which was hashtag um, F you and your dog. And <laughs> I saw it trending and trending. I couldn't believe what I was saying, you know, and I think they were talking about pudding, you know, or jello or something like that. And I had to avert my eyes. And it seems like wherever you avert your eyes now on some areas of social media, you have to try to avert your eyes again. Um, and so I'm constantly on social media. I'm constantly on Twitter. And I've, I've done my best to sort of set up as many possible filters as I can. And where Twitter's concerned, obviously, it's just about creating different groups so you only see those people that you want to see. But every now and then, you know, a hashtag F you and your dog will creep into your world. Um, and there's something about it that you have, to, you have to ask yourself, well, who the heck is hashtagging F you and your dog? And you start to read it, and then there's a rabbit hole Oops. involved. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, went down the road. It's not good. Hole. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good at all. So. Well, that and that's and that and that just means you have to have discipline. I mean, you know, that's it's it's one of the things that uh, is challenging with social media is that you know uh, you could easily spend you know your entire day just you know consuming social media, um, and so you have to be pretty disciplined about you know what it is that you're doing and, and how you're doing it. So. Um, can I can, can I have us leave social media? And I wanted to ask you a question because again, we, we sort of touched on this earlier, but I was thinking about it um, a little while ago. Um, do you think that there is room for a serious, substantial, um, well-read new wine publication centered on the American audience? Because we haven't really seen one emerge in quite some time, have we? We've seen them, you know, die. But we haven't seen one emerge, and um, I think it might be because there seems to be a lot of noise from um, the relatively large number of smallerish um, niche wine publications that may have convinced other people that this is a um, this is a niche that's saturated. But I'm not sure it is, particularly from a consumer-facing perspective. And I'm wondering if you think that there's room for that, and if you think that anyone um, with means um, might want to take it on. Honestly, I don't know. I don't um, either. You know, I've been it's, surprised. It's, I I would like to think so. Uh, I, I do think you know in term in terms of where where journalism is going in general. Um, I do feel like uh, magazines in general are moving more niche, and they're moving more towards. Um, more thoughtful, th more thoughtfully written pieces. Mm -hmm. I agree. You know? uh, and 
So I would like to think that there is potential out there for a publication that really looks at the world of wine in a different angle uh, and really kind of dives deep um, right. into certain subjects um, where the other, um, the other publications, which, you know, are great. Um, you know, they might not necessarily have the luxury of, of going very deep into a particular, um, if you were going to create a publication that went deep onto different subjects, you'd have to be content with having a much, much smaller audience who oh, subscribed yeah. to your publication oh, totally. and fed you that way. Totally. And, um, you know, and frankly, it's probably, it probably have to be like an all subscription model, you know, absolutely. um, you know, the, cause the advertising, the advertising model is just, is failing in, in, in print publications. So, uh, but you know, I mean, there, there are other, there are publications out there. There are lifestyle publications out there that, that fit this bill. Um, and so, and I think that there, that, that things are moving more in that direction. Every now and then online, you'll see a nice deep dive by a member of the media into a subject that isn't often covered, um, or that hasn't been often covered, um, that whether I disagree with it, um, or not, I think it's fantastic that somebody assigned the story and somebody was willing to let somebody explore the subject. And so, for example, we're seeing a lot more being written these days about social justice in the wine industry. And I have various issues with the whole social justice movement. I think it's, I think it can be done better, but nonetheless, it's being done. Um, and there's, there have been a variety of really interesting deep dives on that, on that subject. Um, that don't resolve the issue at all in large part because it's unresolvable to some degree. Um, but you would have never seen anything like that been written, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And it's, it's always interesting uh, for me to see how culture creeps into this sort of insular industry that we're in. And it does, it ultimately does creep into our industry. And it's just fascinating how it does. And I think social media or rather social justice is going to be a topic of conversation in the wine industry going forward that, not just the media, but I think also um, the producers and the retailers and the wholesalers are going to have to reckon with. All I can say, Tom, is watch this space. <laughs> watch this space. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know who you have to have on? You have to have Victoria James come on yeah. um, from, uh, from New York. I've criticized her in the past, but I haven't seen anybody out there who's, pu who's putting more um, of her money where her mouth is. Um, sometimes I think her mouth strays, but nonetheless, um, she's, I, she's one of those people who is willing to stand up and, and do things about what she thinks. And that's slightly rare in this industry too. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that going forward this year and watching how the wine media, um, sort of absorbs all these cultural issues and, and spits them back out. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in 2020 on those issues. I can't agree more. And that is a wonderful way to wrap up this. So um, thanks a ton for being on the show today. It's been a great conversation. Um, one of my favorites actually. So thanks a ton. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been Hit the Bible, a production of Balzac Communications and Marketing. You can find past episodes on our website at htbpodcast.com. Drop us a line on social at htbpodcast or send us an email to mike at htbpodcast.com or emma at htbpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please rate and review in any of the mentioned platforms. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day.